0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com.
1: From WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic. And welcome to everyone listening on the radio and online at WDEVradio.com. Today, we start with the war in Ukraine. We have not taken up this issue on the show to this point, so it's about time we did. So stick with us. It's long and it's complicated and has serious implications for all of us. And it involves the most delicate diplomacy and the most savage aspect of human jealousy, insecurity, and greed... And it involves nations, the United States and Russia, that possess the bulk of the world's nuclear weapons. We will speak with an expert on the subject of nuclear weapons with regard to the Russian Ukrainian war in our first hour. Then we head to Washington for our weekly chat with former Congressman and DC correspondent Bob Ney. And to get, today we'll be asking him about the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action and all things Washington. And then we're going to speak with Rachel Hellman about Vermont's Third Spaces. It's the cover story in seven days today. Third Spaces are hubs where people spend time between their primary spaces of home and work. Rachel profiles seven spots in rural Vermont from a community pizza oven to a hardware store with a bar. That's in Cabot. I've been there. Where momentum is building to create more of them following the isolation of the pandemic pandemic. Uh, this is a good one, uh, and it's fascinating because those third spaces, you know, used to be church, uh, the the Elks Club, and all sorts of other gathering spaces, Little League. But uh, as those traditions have waned, uh, the need for third spaces for us to gather and build friendships is growing. Uh, and at 1030, we open the phones and talk about news and whatever's on your mind. Uh, I'll take your calls. I'm going to do some promotion of uh, July 4th activities and arts events around the region. I've got a special one for you. Uh, But the phones will be open. We'll take your calls. The number to call is 244-1777. And my email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. But first, a couple of headlines. The U.S. Supreme Court on the heels of our Wednesday show about the conflicts of interest going on there issued a ruling that strikes down affirmative action policies at colleges around the country. That is, you can't, you can no longer take an applicant because of their race. You cannot check the race box anymore. Uh, conservatives are jubilant. Liberals are predictably beside themselves. The president and vice president and all sorts of private colleges uh, – well, private and public, actually uh, – predicted that uh, student bodies will become more white, uh, more elite, and less diverse. So uh, we'll see where that goes. I, I will do a show on this. Uh, we'll try to get uh, admissions directors from various colleges in Vermont and around the country um, – but uh, this, this, this Supreme Court is, is, on, a, is on a path of, uh, of, of changing things in this country, and it's going to be fascinating to see where it goes. We'll take this up with Bob Ney uh, later in the hour. Uh, try to hold your questions about this issue for the, for the 1030 hour because we've got a lot to get to in our first few minutes. When we come back, Russia, Ukraine, the United States – and nuclear weapons. It's Friday, June 29th. No, sorry. It's Friday, June 30th. And you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. We're back. On February 24th, 2022, Russian forces invaded a largely unprepared Ukraine after President Vladimir Putin authorized what he called a special military operation. This was a continuation of an offensive Putin started back in 2014 when he seized the Crimea region of Ukraine. And along the way, as the United States stepped in with weapons and sanctions and financial help for Ukraine, Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons to achieve his, his ends. And the latest news is that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Mercenary Group, a private army that worked for Putin, rebelled against his patron marching his renegade army within 125 miles of Moscow in frustration with the way Putin is conducting this war. Putin pushed back, and Prigozhin is now somewhere in the country of Belarus, no doubt fearing for his life after a week in which he embarrassed Putin by making his hold on power look tenuous. And there you have it. Two countries, the U.S. and Russia, possessing 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, and Putin has threatened to use them to win a war. Today we speak with a leading expert on nuclear weapons about the threat. Ward Wilson is the executive director of Realist Revolt, a nonprofit dedicated to the elimination of nuclear weapons. He's been a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists, the British American Security Information Council, among others, has spoken in 23 countries, Yale, Princeton, and Georgetown, not to mention the U.S. Naval War College and the generals at the, the Pentagon. He is the author of Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons and the upcoming book, It Is Possible, A Future About Without Nuclear Weapons. Ward Wilson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. Okay. You uh, and I have in front of me an opinion piece that's being published this week regarding the Purgosian Rebellion that threatens Putin's control of Russia, um, and you say that this actually takes us closer to a nuclear conflict than not. Can you start us there?
2: Yeah, a lot of commentators are saying, you know, Putin's weaker, and that's a good thing, and uh, this means that the forces Ukrainian forces have a better chance of winning, and and so on. And it's true that Putin's position is weakened, but uh, that isn't necessarily. And of course, all of us, I think, would be happy to see the Russians get what they deserved in this, you know, unjustified aggression against Ukraine. But uh, the reality is that his weakness uh, makes him more dangerous.
1: Yeah, it, um, yeah, it, it, it it's fascinating. You're right. You watch CNN and sort of mainstream media and and there's a, a kind of a cheering about an analysis. It's all over the New York Times about Putin is weaker uh and this will uh drive him it, the more he loses this war, uh the more he will be uh forced to come, come to the negotiating table.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I was looking back at the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the most, you know, the closest the world ever came to nuclear war, the most dangerous crisis. And, um, you know, President Kennedy, who was successfully navigated that crisis, what he learned, what he said was important after the crisis was, it, it says this in his peace speech in 1963, above all, while defending our own vital interests, Nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or nuclear war. And I think that that's, I think that that's the heart of it. I think Kennedy's right that the problem with a world with nuclear weapons is that if you're a leader who uh, is in a tight space, if you're forced to contemplate losing, I mean, Putin would potentially If he were overthrown, if he loses the war in Ukraine, he may lose his hold on Russia. If he loses his hold on Russia, he loses his vast fortune. He loses his political power. He might even lose his life. He would lose essentially everything he's worked for uh, his entire life. And in that situation, risking using nuclear weapons might seem like a worthwhile gamble to him. And so... The problem with the world where some people have – some countries have nuclear weapons is that as as you get closer to beating someone who has nuclear weapons, they have more and more incentive to risk using those weapons.
1: Can you take us back to the Cuban miss- Missile Crisis of which you are a student and I am, although nowhere near uh, as much as you are um, – it seemed to me that the the lesson there broke down to, br- breaks down this way that that when you have someone cornered uh, you have to be mature enough and calm enough to let that person back out of the corner because if cornered they're likely to do something irrational and rash uh, and dangerous is that is that the lesson from the Cuban Missile Crisis?
2: Absolutely. I mean, Kennedy, uh, one of the first things he said after they got the message saying that uh, Khrushchev had agreed to withdraw the missiles from Cuba. So the, the Soviet Union put tried to sneak missiles into Cuba, and the U.S. spy planes discovered them. Uh, Kennedy and his, his advisors talked about it for a week. They eventually settled on a – the first course of action they considered was to just bomb the missile sites in Cuba – Uh, They were angry, they were caught up in emotion, they felt betrayed because the Russians had said, no, we're not putting offensive weapons into Cuba. But eventually, cooler heads prevailed, and they quarantined the island. They put a blockade around it and ratcheted up the pressure, also made a secret side deal to remove missiles, U.S. missiles in Turkey. Eventually, Khrushchev agreed to take the missiles out of Cuba for a pledge on the US's part, not to invade Cuba ever. And the first thing that Kennedy said when he sat down with uh, his staff and the National Security Council after the crisis was over, after they got this message, was no voting. Don't rub his face in it because, you know, he's already been humiliated enough and you don't want to drive him back over the edge and, and uh, into extreme action. He, he understood that The danger with nuclear weapons is that human beings are human beings. They're not always rational. And if you put them in a tight enough corner, they may do something really irrational like launching a nuclear attack.
1: Okay, can you talk to us about the nuclear weapons situation? Uh, It's been 75-something years since we exploded the first atomic bomb. Kennedy once said that we now are living under a sword of Damocles, uh, and I guess we've been living that way ever since. How many bo- how many nuclear weapons do we have? How many do the Russians have, and how many are over there in Europe, near uh, near Putin's border?
2: So, um, let's see. At the height of the late seventies, early eighties. There were something like 70,000 nuclear weapons. Um, the vast majority have always been in the U.S. and Russian arsenals. Um, and uh, the U.K. has 150 and France has 200. And China for a long time had a very small number, uh, although they've recently started to increase their numbers. And there are projections that they will roughly match the Russian and U.S. arsenals in the next few years, um, and um, and there's something like fourteen thousand weapons now total in the world, mostly divided between the U.S. and Russia. The Russia, the, the Russians have slightly more, but um, people are less. Um, it used to be in the, in the '70s, '60s, and '70s everyone was breathless about the size of the two arsenals. And if the U.S. was ahead by 200 weapons, that was a big deal. And if it looked like the Russians might be ahead by three or four weapons, that would be, you know, a cause for concern. We're, there's less feeling about like that today, where uh, they don't seem like uh, weapons that you're likely to use in war as much as they did then. So We go we the arc of it is that we were emotionally very concerned about nuclear weapons throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s and started to become less concerned in the 80s when the arsenals essentially halved and then continued to decline. And in the 90s, finally, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of people thought, oh, well, this problem went away. Right. No Soviet Union, no problem. And now, uh, um, it turns out that, that there are countries today, every arsenal in the world is either expanding a little bit or, uh, improving, upgrading its weapons. So there is a, a new nuclear arms race going on now. It's not as breakneck speed as the one in the fifties and sixties, but the trend is toward more
1: reliance on nuclear weapons rather than less and and Putin in this Ukraine conflict has threatened to use nuclear weapons several times can you what does that mean uh, first of all let's get to what it means later what, what, explain what he's trying to achieve by threatening the use of nuclear weapons
2: it's not I mean I don't know Putin <laughs> so, we, and maybe even his closest you know, aides don't know he, leaders uh, tend to be good at disguising what it is they're planning or thinking um, my take is Putin's fundamentally a bully he's not a warrior who loves to fight and wants to you know race in and start throwing punches he's a guy who likes to rely on intimidation and apparently in history nuclear weapons are the best the strongest the greatest form of intimidation that is at his disposal. And so he's made, uh, I don't know, a number of threats. Maybe I, I made a list, and it's at least half a dozen. Maybe it's, and when you include the other officials, uh, Medvedev and so on, who've also made threats, probably have been maybe a dozen threats of, nucle- of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. What the Russians are threatening to do is to use their tactical weapons. There are two classes of nuclear weapons. Strategic, they're the long-range ones that you shoot from the U.S. to Russia, China to the U.S. or whatever. And then tactical ones tend to be shorter range and somewhat smaller, although not all that much smaller. Uh, the majority of the land-based tactical missiles in the, so, in the Russian arsenal uh, have warheads that are 10 kilotons that is roughly two-thirds the size of the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima so that's not a small bomb that's not like uh, I mean you'll you'll have uh, destruction area that's uh, a, a, a mile in diameter and and perhaps with other effects radiation and heat and so on reaching out farther um, so, uh, they're big weapons. They cause radiation poisoning, which is fatal at close range and can cause cancer at long range. And um, and they've got a lot of them. They've got thousands that they could deliver by missiles, by fighter bombers, uh, by regular bombers. Although they'd probably use missiles because missiles are the least.
1: Uh, likely to get shot down but do you so okay let's play the scenario out Putin is backed into a corner he's losing the war he decides uh to use a tactical nuclear weapon that he shoots via a missile somewhere in Ukraine to yeah. to destroy a city
2: yeah but here's the thing uh, the real there's a nuclear weapons are like a bogeyman They mostly, most of what we quote unquote know or think about them is exaggerated because I don't know why. Uh, But the reality that every time Putin says nuclear weapons, everyone, you know, catches their breath and becomes frightened. It's like a Pavlovian response. The reality is, it's not that easy to use a tactical nuclear weapon. Front lines are pretty close together, sometimes 300, you 400, 500 yards apart. And if you drop a nuclear weapon on your enemy's front line, some of your own soldiers will be killed in the blast. That that tends to lower morale. And the other problem is that if the wind is blowing in the wrong direction, the radiation can blow back on your own troops. And from a 10-kiloton blast, you can have fatal radiation spread 25 miles in an hour. And so if the wind's blowing the wrong way, you could wipe out a large swath of your own troops near the front line. You can't even drop a bomb 20 miles behind front lines and be sure it'll be safe because if the wind changes direction. Um, So likely he'd choose a target that seems important that is far back from the front lines. Um, and that might well be a city. Um, cities, by and large, don't have a lot of military importance. Um, mostly what you'd be doing is killing civilians as a way to try to horrify people. Um, and, uh, so, and so that would, and he, Putin has already said, kind of in a supposedly offhand way, well, you know, what Hiroshima proved is that you don't even have to bomb the capital city in order to win the war. Right. So he might well use one against a
1: smaller um, Ukrainian city. As a kind of demonstration. Right. Right. And then in it, the minute we have left before the break, uh, what happens then? Uh, talk about the United States role and, and our response.
2: Well, I mean, that's a big question, what happens then. The um, emotions run high, people are horrified, anger spikes. You know, if you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, the first day when they found out about what what the Russians had done, they were angry and they wanted to hit back and they wanted to hit back hard. So um, if the Russians use a nuclear weapon, NATO might get involved, the U.S. might get involved. Um, We might even use a nuclear weapon in response and uh and that probably leads to nuclear war. so that's the danger that's the problem
1: and and of course, there's domestic politics involved. you know if Biden doesn't respond in a in a in a forceful way, he'll be accused by in our tribal politics now of being weak and selling out the United States or the ukrainians. yeah.
2: Yeah, Kennedy and his brother talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis decided that if Kennedy had done nothing, he'd have been impeached. And I wouldn't be I mean, they already want to impeach Biden on the on the Republican side of the aisle, so I would think that if if Biden didn't do something that was strong, that it could very well end up in a some kind of you know, political impeachment effort. So.
1: Do do you think, just in 30 seconds, do you think that the Biden administration is talking to the Russians at at any level right now?
2: Uh, I don't know right now, but they have in the past. When the threats were at their highest, I understand there was a meeting with the head of the CIA and his Russian counterpart. And I know that in the week after the most uh, prominent threats, New York Times published a report that said uh, using tactical nuclear weapons is not very useful. The Institute for the Study of War published a report that said the same thing. Uh, Former General David Petraeus said the same thing on uh, an interview on DW. So I'm pretty sure that both publicly and privately, the administration has been trying to persuade the Russians that the reality is using tactical nuclear weapons won't help.
1: Okay. Ward, I want to go back to this somewhat complicated notion of and you write in your piece uh, it would be foolish to encourage civil war in russia to facilitate russia's total defeat in ukraine or to promote any other set of circumstances that backs putin further into a corner i can think of nothing uh th- that is more in against the american impulse I'm thinking of John Wayne here uh, to to win and win totally uh, what you're arguing is we have to go against our impulses and let this guy back himself out of a corner and come to the peace table and save face and that's hard to do right
2: it's a, its a, it requires enormous self-discipline and it um, and it does. It's offensive to our sense of justice and to fair play, and uh, you know our desire to uh, some, in some cases, our desire to dominate, you know, other countries, particularly our adversaries. And so, there's no question that it seems counterintuitive. But the fact is that uh, as long as nuclear weapons exist. So I've I've spent a long time saying that nuclear weapons are not very effective weapons, but paradoxically, they're very dangerous. They're not actually very good at winning wars because they spread all this radiation and their effects are difficult to target precisely, but they are enormously dangerous. And maybe the analogy, one way to unpack this is to think of, let's say someone was trying to kill you, Kevin. And uh, they called you up and issued a bunch of threats and, you know, you called me up and said, ward, what can I do? How can I defend myself and my family? And I said, no problem, Kevin. I've got just the thing. Here's a tiny bottle of old style nitroglycerin. Don't drop it because just the slightest bump or knock will set it off. It's enormously dangerous and enormously powerful. And, and it, this will be, this will keep you safe. And so you say, great. Thanks so much. And take the bottle. But the reality is, the bottle doesn't actually protect you that much. It's almost as much danger to you as it is to any potential enemies. Somebody breaks into your house at night, you reach to the nightstand where your bottle is, and you drop it or knock it over, you blow up your family and the guys trying to get you. But that's not really much comfort. That's not really a useful way to, quote unquote, protect your family. And that's kind of the way we are with nuclear weapons. They're very dangerous. They're just not that useful. They're not that great as military tools drones you know uh, are far more useful it turns out in actual fighting and that's why over the last 40 years the use of drones in war has skyrocketed but over nearly uh, a century you know we're approaching three quarters of a century no one has found a situation in which some of the Oh, these are the absolute best weapons we could possibly use in this situation. In fact, again and again, military leaders have been asked about, should we use nuclear weapons here? Korea, Vietnam, the Taiwan Straits crisis, and and the Gulf War. And again and again, the response that the, they they run the scenario and do the research and they look at the mil- this question militarily, and the response is always, no, these are not the ideal weapons. So there's that kind of contradiction, and at the heart of it, that that they're dangerous, but they're actually not that useful. In a world where your adversary possesses a really dangerous weapon, uh, you can't punish him as much as you want, because if the worst comes to the worst, if it's the last moment, he can decide the way Samson did to pull down the temple around him and destroy Europe and, you know, much of the United States. So, yeah, that's the, that is the emotionally difficult thing that the world, this new world with nuclear, well, not that new, but this world with nuclear weapons constrains what we can do.
1: Um, I wonder if you can comment on uh, a, a, a growing, uh, Kind of thought that, uh, actually Robert Kennedy Jr.'s raising it in the presidential race. And that is that we bear, we in the United States bear some responsibility here because we and the Europeans expanded NATO to Putin's doorstep, um over the last decade, uh, while having sort of publicly promised not to do so. And we know Russia's history with being invaded by Hitler and others. Uh, it, it, do we bear any responsibility for expanding NATO here and pushing Putin into a corner, or is that crazy?
2: Um, it's not crazy. There's a bunch of serious people who think that uh, you know pushing NATO expansion was a problem that that uh, may have fueled the Russian desire to push back. On the other hand, you don't know. I mean. Putin reportedly has these ideas that he's the reincarnation of Peter the Great, the Russian czar who originally conquered Ukraine, and um, wants to reunite, the, reconquer the, the old Soviet Union and take back all the territories that they lost when the, the breakup happened. But fundamentally, um, I... The arguments that I want to make are realist arguments, and fundamentally, I'm not that interested in who's at fault. A lot of people want to talk about Hiroshima and say, you know, well, were we right to drop the bomb? Well, the moral question, however, doesn't interest me as much as the question of whether it was effective, whether the Japanese really surrendered because we dropped atomic bombs, as they claim they did or whether they actually surrendered because the Russians declared war the night before we bombed Nagasaki. And it looks pretty much like that was the motivating factor. I want to look at realism. And, you know, uh, from where I sit, Robert Kennedy Jr. is really good at finding the emotional lever that gets people excited. And talking about the U.S. being to blame, you know, obviously sets a lot of people off. And maybe, maybe rightly. I mean, there's a case to be made that Putin was going to want to conquer Ukraine, whether NATO expanded or not. Uh, Although maybe NATO expansion, I just I I don't
1: know. Right. So, how does this end? Uh, I know you don't. Nobody knows, but but given our possession of nuclear weapons, and given the reckless talk about them by Putin. Where do you think this goes? Does it end at the negotiating table or on the battlefield?
2: I don't know. I mean, I I, I worry about this all the time. Uh, and especially I remember early on when the first thing Putin did after they launched the invasion of Ukraine was to talk about, was to put Russian nuclear forces on higher state of alert. Um, I don't know where it goes. I mean... The two options are that, uh, well, I mean, if Putin uses nuclear weapons on the battlefield or in Ukraine, that's a really serious escalation. And it could end, it increases the chances of nuclear war significantly. And so probably it makes sense to do whatever you can not to Allow that escalation to begin. So maybe if Putin uses nuclear weapons, you don't do anything. Right. Uh, and that would be a really difficult choice to make. And it would, it would take enormous courage on the president's part. And as I say, might very well start impeachment processes. But the alternative of fighting a nuclear war with Russia is stupid. It's, I mean, it, it might be. Po- it, in the, old, in, the, in the old bipolar world where the Russians had nuclear weapons and we had nuclear weapons and everybody else was essentially, we were giants and they were very, very short. And you could imagine a situation where we could fight a nuclear war, we would both be damaged, but one of us might be able to build back up faster than the other and in some sense, quote unquote, win the war. And there were scenarios like this in the 60s where people tried to calculate how long it would take to rebuild a society. But in, um, in the world we have today, that doesn't make any sense because we're not two giants anymore. The U.S. is a giant. Russia is only a partial giant. And China has a significant nuclear weapons force and, and a huge economy. If the U.S. and Russia fight a nuclear war, we'll both be de- devastated and China will end up dominating the world. We'll no longer be in a position to lead, and we might end up in a position where we report to Beijing. Um, And that's not an outcome that we want. So it's it's hard to imagine a nuclear war where anything ends well. Uh, If we fight a nuclear war with China over Taiwan, uh, Russia would probably— try to move in and reconquer Europe, conquer Europe and, you know, or if Russia and the U.S. and China all get destroyed, you know, some other world power would come forward and, and dominate things. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've forgotten the question. I got all caught up in nuclear war.
1: <laughs> How does this end? Uh and, and none of us know, obviously. I wonder if you can, uh, talk about, you're an expert at the notion of deterrence. We've been living under this, the notion of mutually assured destruction since 1945. Um, and you, you say that deterrence, uh, is inevitably going to fail, even, even though others would say, well, it's worked quite well. Uh, both of us staring at each other in the nuclear bottle. Two scorpions uh, staring each other down with our nuclear weapons. Can you talk more about deterrence uh, with with Ukraine in the back of our minds?
2: Sure. Um, you know, it seems that it, deterrence works fine. <clears throat> we all hate living under the threat of nuclear war, but you know, it seems to be working out. Problem is, um, that. Uh, the reality is quite simple. There are two things. One is there's a, a record. The has failed in the past. Um, the Egyptians and Syrians attacked uh, Israeli forces in the occupied territories and made war on Israel in 1973, even though everyone knew Israel had nuclear weapons. It had been reported in the New York Times. The Argentines attacked the British in the Falkland Islands in 1982. The British had nuclear weapons. The Argentines didn't. So in theory, deterrence ought to work. Um, You know, the U.S. and Russia faced off over Cuba. Um, The United States knew that if they that there was there was a risk of nuclear war. Kennedy and his aides, in the week when they had secret deliberations about what to do, they mentioned the possibility of nuclear war sixty times. Yet they still went ahead with the blockade, which ratcheted up the danger and increased the risk. And you could argue that that's a failure of deterrence. If they were really afraid of nuclear war, they wouldn't have escalated the crisis. So it seems obvious that nuclear deterrence hasn't worked every time. Um, So that's the practical record. And there's a theoretical reason. There's a, a common sense reason why we know that nuclear deterrence can't last over the long run. And that is Human beings are flawed. We all make mistakes from the lowest soldier to the highest leader. Nobody's perfect. And human beings are involved in the process of nuclear deterrence. Human beings make the deterrence threats. Human beings evaluate those threats and then decide how to respond. We're, we're in it every step of the way. Deterrence isn't a machine that sits quietly in the corner and runs, hums along unattended. You know, we run it. We run the process. So if human beings are fallible, if we're prone to folly, and we certainly are, and if we're involved in the process of nuclear deterrence, and we're involved at every step, then the process of nuclear deterrence is inherently flawed. It will fail over the long run. And one of those times when it fails, our luck will run out and... We'll end up in a nuclear war, and that'll have devastating consequences for us and for the Russians, and probably for Europe. It won't be the end of the world. I don't think that's realistic. If seven hundred seventy million people on the southern hemisphere, last qu- is, last it'll qu- be
1: bad enough. L- last question: Sorry. If the Cuban Missile Crisis was a nine on the scale of one to ten in danger, where are we now?
2: Hard to tell what's inside Putin's head. Yeah, but, you know I'd give it an eight or an eight eight and a half. It's it's very serious.
1: Wow, he's
2: in a he's in a really tight spot, and we need to proceed realistically. That's that's the key.
1: Ward Wilson is the author of the forthcoming book "It Is Possible: A Future Without Nuclear Weapons." It's going to be available in September. Thank you for joining us. We promised to have you back to talk about the book. And uh, this is a sobering uh, I- issue, but uh, a serious one for serious people. So thank you for coming on.
2: Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Well, that was a sobering conversation with a nuclear weapons expert saying that we're at an 8 on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of danger um, of Putin and others uh, utilizing nuclear weapons in this Ukraine war. So let's get some reaction. Uh, Let's go to the phones. Fred, you're on the line.
3: Yeah, uh, I think your buddy there wants to sell books. Uh, Pakistan and India... Uh, both got nuclear weapons, and they get into a gunfight every once in a while. But MAD worked; it worked there. It's going to work. It's worked for well, what, eighty years now, almost.
1: You're talking There's about no that. Th- you're talking about deterrence, right?
3: Yeah, the deterrence. That's right. MAD still works. I believe that, and I think most common people that they believe it too. But, anyways, the one of the biggest interesting thing is, you know, the Test Ban Treaty. Has made it very, very expensive to have nuclear weapons. You know why?
1: I do. Go ahead.
3: Uh, here's the reason why. Nuclear weapons are very, very hard to detonate. In other words, you gotta get a, a critical mass. Critical mass is, is when you get enough, uh, nuclear material like plutonium and you can put it together so that the weight gets to a critical mass. That's very difficult to do. And the only two ways you can do it is you can do it with what they call the gun, or you can do it with high explosives called the implosion to, to compress the uh, the uh, nuclear material. And it's very difficult to do. And why is it difficult to do? Is because the implosion is done with... with, with uh, uh, conventional high explosives, but it has to compress, and the shape that you make those uh, high explosives is very critical and very hard to do, and so what we do is we use very sophisticated computers to make sure that those uh, devices, in other words, the conventional explosive devices will work, because we have a test ban treaty, and nobody can test any part of a nuclear weapon anymore.
1: Okay. So, Fred. So, MAD's going to work. Fred, thank you for the call. I think, uh, I think our guess point would have been in response to you is that uh, we're, they may be expensive, uh, but uh, we're still making them and we're still modernizing them and somewhere along the way somebody's going to make a mistake. Let's go to Brian in Eden. Brian, you're on the show.
4: Hey, how you doing? Hey, um, that that was an extremely useful discussion with your uh expert there. I I just am so it's good to hear somebody talk realistically about these things. Um, you know, I love the United States, I love Americans. You referred to it as the uh John Wayne spirit, I guess, or whatever, which I'm not as big a fan of naming it that. But we do have this Yahoo kind of get it done direct sort of wahoo spirit about ourselves, which the world loves to a certain degree. Um, We can't judge Russia. Unfortunately, we also judge every country according to as if they're Americans, which is just wrong. Um, We can't judge Russia as we do our own society. When we look at our own volatile politics, or France for that matter, they have very volatile politics there. The Russians, it's not like that for them. Um, Putin as far as Putin being overthrown by some kind of groundswell of democratic, it's just, it's quite likely not going to happen. And getting rid of Putin, we could easily end up with somebody further, far further to the right, which doesn't really enter our equation. We got into this thing because we got mad at Neville Chamberlain for appeasing Hitler. Of course, we didn't get in the war very quickly, but this whole idea of any weakness towards an enemy will lead to defeat, uh, we really have to get out of that and go back to a more 17th uh, or 18th century diplomacy where you give and you take. Nobody likes the answer, but you don't kill each other. And it's just the only option in a nuclear world. And I, I just want to thank you for how realistic that discussion was.
1: Brian, stay on the line just for a second yeah. and answer this question. Uh, yes. <clears throat> given where our politics have gone in in this generation, sort of more tribal, more left, more right, more hate filled. Uh, uh, is this possible for us to think about it in this way? Um, you know what? I think I, I think I should not have asked that question, uh, because I'm running out of time. If you want to come back after the break, we can, uh, we can uh, take that issue on. But, uh, Brian, so call back in and we'll, <clears throat> we'll take your call later because I want to keep talking about that. Maybe we can do it in the 1030 hour. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a really interesting discussion. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, it, it. Cooler heads have to prevail here, and uh, it seems to me the United States uh, can and should be the cooler head. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. You're listening to WDEV. We'll be right back.
2: Did you know that
0: Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos, including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio.
1: We're back, and we're going to uh, go to Washington, D.C. and have our weekly chat with Bob Nay. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you I Kevin. I want to jump right to given that I have four children, and several of them have arrived uh, after long waits in airports. Uh, I want to jump right to that. And I, I, <laughs> I, uh, the actor Alec Baldwin posted a, an Instagram post the other day after nine hours in an airport saying, why is the American, why are American airlines so, and then, uh, he used an expletive. Um, oh. so I would ask you as a, as a observer of, uh, our federal government that regulates airlines. Why are our airlines so bad?
0: Well, first of all, congratulations on the kids coming home. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, know, you. And that's great. But I'm sure there's a couple of stories amongst some of them about trying to get there. Oh. And for for, for people uh, traveling, this you know it has become more of a nightmare, too. I travel a lot, not as much as I used to, but I still do. And of course, you've just got to be braced for a lot of you know delays and cancellations. But this is the extended Fourth of July holiday weekend, so you've got huge crowds, you technology failures. How about the weather from uh, from Canada? You know, bad weather, of course, can always hit. And uh, then United Airlines has used that uh, and all those items that have happened as a majority of reason that you know their flights are canceled uh, nationwide. They um, have a lot of flight disruptions, uh, equipment interference from the from wireless uh, equipment, which U.S. Uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg had mentioned in in one of the articles that was published today, and on and on and on. But also, I think too, the process through the airports. I I just flew to India, uh, you know. As you know, in fact, I I did your show from India, right? And. Uh, I, I must say, I moved rather quicker through the uh, Indian system, including domestic travel in India, than I did in the United States. And so part of it, I think, is the security aspect, uh, maybe, you know, having, you know, more lanes uh, open, but also part of it's the pilots. And I think the recruitment is going to have to also be bolstered from what I understand it, besides all of the technological problems that exist and the weather, et cetera. Uh, some of the flights, I know I had one canceled because they were just basically short on crew, short on pilots, short on uh, stewards and stewardesses.
1: Yeah, it's everybody I talk to has been sitting in an airport for, uh, you know, my my son's flight crew had not showed up yet. Mm -hmm. And, and, And we talked in the car on the way home about, the, the, this leads to the worst behavior in all of us because, you know, you, you, you don't care about the person next to you. All you want to do is get to your destination. And he talked about a woman who was thrown off a flight because they overbooked and she was in tears calling her family saying she couldn't get on the flight and, and people were just walking by her because they just want to get on the, plane and get home and and I must say I would see Buttigieg on video online and I don't know he's sitting there in a seat in an airline telling people it's all going to be okay but I don't think people think it's okay at all
0: well it's not and you're right about the behavior I have been on flights where recently where I held my breath because a passenger got angry at something and you know if they don't take him off the flight and it continues on the entire flight is then held Right, and of course, if the flight's held and you have a connection, you know you're not in good shape. So I, I there's such a uh, stress now to to flying. I mean, I'm starting to hear it in my voice because I've just been through so many flights where something starts to happen. There's anger levels. People are, you know, either yelling at each other or almost yelling at each other. And then the overbooking thing is. I, I guess I don't understand it. I, they must book to protect themselves to get you know seats full. But when you're overbooked, it's unreal because somebody's got to get off the plane and you're not going to be happy about it.
1: No. OK, Bob, uh, the Supreme Court is at it again. Uh, conservatives uh, love this affirmative action decision. Liberals hate it. Where are we? Well, there's actually
0: in between the lines on this, and and if people really uh, look into what has been existing, I think they're going to be a little bit shocked in the sense of this. Yes, the Supreme Court will now mean that colleges across the United States will be forced to stop considering race and admissions. Uh, That's true. Now, this was ironically now, when we talk about race and admissions, this was brought by Asian-American students who said that they were being discriminated against at the more, quote, prestigious colleges, you know, as such as Harvard, et cetera, and that's how this suit began. Now, in generic terms, looking at this, schools, you know, have relied on race, et cetera, but they're going to now have to change their policies. So it's expected that there'll be more white and Asian-American students, and I add that because Asian-Americans, you know, again, brought this suit. Now, the impact of this is really going to be at what would, I guess we call them Ivy League colleges. I'm, I'm old, right. so I still use that term. Yeah. But today's world selective colleges, they'll, that'll be felt more strong there. But the United States government uh, doesn't look into colleges. They aren't, re- colleges aren't required to disclose whether they consider race, and the feds don't track it. So they did a survey in 2019 you know, roughly four years ago. And it said that four in 10 colleges said race had at least limited influence. So six in 10 haven't been using it anyway. Uh, now, at the the bigger change, that I think, is going to be more at the at the, you know, at the higher, quote, college uh, selective level. Uh I think we'll see more of it. But here's the other bottom line of this, Kevin. There the president has stressed use. You know, disadvantages like economic disadvantages or culture or life disadvantages in selection. So now colleges are going to sit down. I'll make two predictions. They're going to sit down and, and figure out a way to, you know, add some questions as one article says today on your background. And then they'll, they'll consider that if it's a, you know, tied between you and someone else maybe. Number two prediction. Colleges are going to come up with some way that somebody's going to get sued. Yeah, that's my second. That's an easy prediction.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Okay, um in, in 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 Vermont, we were enveloped in uh Canadian wildfire smoke uh a, a week or so ago. We are all closing our windows. Now it's back down in New York City. Um is it does this ever get to the level of uh the the Oval Office in the White House uh this issue of Canadian wildfires?
0: Well, I think it's going to because they will bring up about the environment and the climate, you know, and and environmental change and causing the wildfires. 19 million acres are on fire. We had it in Ohio. We had it in D.C. Uh, it, it, it was to the danger level. Uh, Columbus, Ohio was, I think, uh, 280 or something in the index. Uh, further east of Columbus, it was still 190 and towards West Virginia the same way. And the danger level uh, is like 150. So this was intense. And Vermont, you know, obviously got hit, uh, D.C., New York. But the White House, there's no question, will, you know, not be able to do anything particular about it, but they will tie it to climate change. They will tie it to that.
1: And, Bob, on the affirmative action decision, uh, it seems to me that the the politics of this just break down in, in a in our predictable – left versus right uh, uh, argument, and kind of nothing changes. I, I guess I'm hoping for some sort of event out there to break a logjam in Congress so people can start working together, but I don't think this is the decision. You're,
0: oh, you're right. This You're 100% right. This isn't a decision. There's going to be other decisions while there have been. Uh, the, the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision then brought into the minds of people what's going to happen with same sex marriage, and the Congress acted, and Republicans actually gave votes, uh, you know, in, in particularly in the House, to um, doing something, you know, about clodifying uh, same sex marriage, because <clears throat> the way the Congress reacts these days, they see the Supreme Court make a decision, and then they try to crash something that will get by that decision. Now, this isn't the one to do it. This will, yes, this is not one that's going to be, you know, exactly bringing people together as the as the same-sex you know marriage uh, codification by Congress did. So, I agree, this isn't going to be the decision that's going to to do it. This one will be, you know, obviously very controversial, and uh, you know, will be debated. Back and forth both ways uh, about how you consider somebody for college.
1: Uh, And in 30 seconds, Bob, rolling Mm -hmm. recession, recession, soft landing. Uh, There's economic news. I know it's dull, but the economy keeps managing to grow despite predictions.
0: Oh, you're giving me such a challenge, 30 seconds, but I'll do it. (laughs) and the economy is continuing you know the feds kept raising the housing uh interest rates while well, the interest rates period and that makes it very difficult and that was the fed answer to the to the fed reserve board uh but there's more to it and price of gasoline uh, you know the price of food the price of products and the supply chain which has been sort of healed after covid but when you look at the at the staggering figures. And I think there's some problems with the way they're analyzing it, but they're looking at it as okay, we have some more jobs, but there was there were big layoffs in the private sector in tech. And then people say, well, there's other jobs available to the people. Well, I don't think that's completely accurate because the people in higher tech made bigger money, most likely, save more money most likely, and are able to live off of that for a while than persons that, you know, didn't have the high tech uh, ability or influence to make that money. So there still are people out there that are struggling because of the, of the price increases just on food alone. So yeah, it's gotten better, but there's still a lot of layoffs, still a lot of problems with the manufacturing sector. And so this is, I think, what we would call a rolling recession. I don't think it's going to hit hardcore bottom, but. People still for the next year are going to be really feeling a pinch. And, and let's face it, who 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 knows what next incident is going to raise gasoline prices? Look what happened with the Ukraine. Look what happened with the world oil supply. You just don't
1: know. Bob Ney, as always, uh, love our chats, and thank you for joining us. We'll see you next well, thank week. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bob Ney from Washington. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we are joined now By Rachel Hellman, uh, she of the cover story in this week's seven days called Green Mountain Meetups. And I'll start by reading one quick paragraph. Civic ties in Vermont communities have been fraying because of a confluence of trends. Local schools are going dark as districts merge. Some general stores have closed. Volunteerism in local emergency services, senior care and community events have dwindled. The home to work and back again shuffle has in some towns sapped community spark and a sense of place. Rachel, give us some good news.
5: <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and working on this cover story, I think I learned some really exciting examples across the state of how folks are reimagining these spaces and figuring out ways to pivot them um, into our, our next iteration of, of what, it, what it looks like to gather in Vermont.
1: I'm... Uh, I'm a veteran of the, uh, capital city Grange in Berlin, mm. not to mention the, uh, the hardware store slash, uh, beer hall in Cabot. So yeah. why don't we start there? To c- tell us about, uh, the capital city Grange in Berlin
5: yeah that was a really wonderful place to visit. um I was amazed by how many people were there. It was around hundred and fifty the night I went, and a lot of them were you know younger um and I think what what they've done really successfully is creating an inclusive environment. you know they changed uh their their um ladies and gents to more gender neutral approach to uh addressing dancers and they've created a sliding scale for payment and those things you know speak volumes I think to the community um and what I learned was that people you know they miss interacting face-to-face. That's something that the pandemic took away. And to be able to look someone in the eye, um, even if you're not talking, is, is profound. and something that people really miss. Um, so it was really cool to be there and, and do a little bit of dancing with the people um, at, at the dance that I went. So uh,
1: the, the title of your story is Green Mountain Meetups, and you talk about something called Third Spaces. Can you tell us what that mm-hmm. means?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I was a sociology major and this is a sociological term that, uh, it defines places that are not work or home where we meet and and are in community. Um, and they're, you know, as you mentioned in that excerpt, general stores, churches, for years they've been these places and, um, you know, they're, they're on decline. There's less and less of these places. It's no secret that these, that, uh, you know, enrollment in churches is going down. General stores are shutting down across the state. Um, and, and the, the result of that is actually quite profound. You know, people don't, I don't think realize how much these interactions you have with your neighbors or with folks who maybe aren't your, in your immediate circle mean not only for um, combating loneliness, but also for forming connections that lead to job opportunities or, um, you know, creative enterprises. It's its really important that these, these spaces continue to exist.
1: Yeah. It's, um, and with the pandemic, where everyone was working at home, not everyone, right? Some of us were working at home, uh, and I, I know I get this in my own family. You know, you, you, there's a there's a feeling of being penned in uh, because, yes. like it or not, when we all went to offices, uh, you'd complain about the office, but there was a community feel. You you learned about the football game on Sunday or the little league game or the whatever activity that was going on in people's lives around the water cooler. That all goes away, and now suddenly Mm -hmm. people are just doing two things: home and work, and often right there in their home, in their house.
5: Yeah. So they need a place to go. Exactly, and you know, we have for years. It was the first place, the second place, the third place. Now, with remote work it may be just the first place, maybe it's just home, and that's where you're working and you're not you're not leaving um yeah, and, and speaking with young folks who you know were maybe in school during the pandemic or coming of age in that time that there's a real hunger there. there's a real i think a resurgence that excites me in in recognizing the need, not the the want the need to have a place to, to meet with your neighbors
1: okay, tell us about the Alberg train station transfer station. <laughs>
5: yeah. Yeah, so in, in working on this story, we actually posed the question to our readers, where do you meet up? Um, and it was really awesome. We got over 250 replies. And one of the most uh, liked and commented was um, the town's up. That's where people saw their neighbors, which I found fascinating. Um, not only in that, you know, it's kind of this de facto meeting place, but what does that mean? Um, so, yeah, I, I ended up going to the Alberg Transfer Station on a Sunday and was amazed by the conversations I witnessed, and uh, and the and this this um, idea was really proven. People were meeting with their neighbors at the dump, um, and I think that's it's a really interesting phenomenon, and um and, and kind of uh, profound in the sense that you know even if there isn't a third place, people are still finding a way to, to see their neighbors, and um and even if it's at the dump.
1: <laughs> you know, I was I was in a at a bar in Burlington last night waiting for my children to fly in to Burlington Airport from uh, New York City. And a uh, woman sat down next to me, and we we did what I think they're doing at the Cabot, uh Hardware mm. in Cabot, which is we just started up a conversation. And she was yeah. in from Philadelphia on on business, and uh, we had a great chat for 30 minutes while I was waiting for the, the plane. That's I think that's the kind of – human interaction that people are yearning for and yes. what you're writing about.
5: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, actually Ben Doyle with the preservation trust of Vermont was someone I spoke with and he put it really well, you know, when we don't have those types of interactions, we're we're lacking um, the spontaneity that comes with meeting someone unexpected, like a pinball machine that you bounce ideas off of. And when you're surrounded by people of a similar circle, you, you don't know what you don't know, you know? And I think the interactions that I witnessed really confirmed that people were having realizations and, and just even feeling heard in a way that maybe they hadn't felt before in other spaces.
1: Tell us about Harry's hardware in Cabot.
5: Yeah, <laughs> that's one of my favorites I visit. It's a bar in a hardware store, perhaps the only in New England. Um, and what's really, I think, cool there is that the owner figured out a way to take a place that was, you know, financially struggling. And I think that's a common theme among a lot of these places that perhaps there used to be an institution, but, um, you know, with with the onslaught of of various factors that have come in the past decade, they've had to figure out ways to pivot and survive. And so she thought, why don't why don't we put a, a bar in here? <laughs> and it's been it's really truly turned into a community hub. I was there on Thursday, the unofficial locals night, and it was packed. Let me tell you. And they there was really a wide variety of ages and things going on. You know, I I spoke with some folks in their 90s who were enjoying a meal and a glass of wine, and other folks who were sitting around the bar, um, you know, fitballing a business idea and someone else telling a crazy story about cows that had escaped and the town rallying to find them. So it was a real, uh, I think, great example of what can happen and, and what it can feel like to be in a space that um, has really opened up and become a hub for a community.
1: And, of course, my favorite, uh, the Whammy Bar in the back of the Maple Corner store in Callis, just a. To- couple of miles from my house, uh, it, yeah. it doesn't get better or tighter than that.
5: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's another great example of a pivot. You know, the Maple Corner store um, has been a general store for that um, community since the 1800s. Um, and the former owners really saw an opportunity to create another revenue stream by opening a bar. But what they've created is a true uh, music venue that has Really, a lot of artists who I spoke with aspire to be there because of how intimate it is, and I think that feeling is really comes across if you go there. Um, you know, folks, you're you're uptight with people, but you can feel the music and you can feel the energy um, and, and feel the welcoming nature of of the space.
1: Well, I'll I'll read the quote from Dee Davis, who is the uh, renowned guitarist in Central Vermont, who by the way played uh, at my son's wedding in our backyard. <laughs> He said, that's "You can awesome. you can be a complete stranger at the Whammy Bar and go there and feel like you're hanging out with the best family that night. It's medicine. It's like the best medicine that I know of. If I didn't have those kinds of gigs, I wouldn't be alive." Um, yeah, that's what you felt.
5: Yeah, I think his quote really speaks volumes. I was there on a open mic night, um, and you could see that you know folks performing there and folks listening really. We're, we're in the moment together, enjoying what was happening right in front of them. And that's, that's rare. That's not so common nowadays when, when we're bombarded with uh, information and, and often siloed from each other.
1: And lastly, uh, in 30 seconds, the Elmore Store, which I've driven by a thousand times, and I never knew there was a back deck overlooking the
5: lake. Yeah, the Elmore store, I think, is a great example of how a community came together to say something that they recognized was important. Um, a few years ago, it seemed like the store was maybe going to sell. Um, and the the community came together and purchased it as part of a trust and have since been operating it um, in that capacity. And I think it points to how important that place is. You know, in a small town like Elmore, where literally the the Elmore store is the post office, the coffee shop, the pizza station, the, the in-between place, those places are invaluable. Um, and, it, and I think they, they have a great example of how communities can actually be the driving force behind creating and saving these places.
1: Rachel Hellman, her cover story is in seven days this week. It's called Green Mountain Meetup, Meetups. It's about the third space where we need to go to make friends and build community. Uh, Rachel, as always, thanks and say hi to everybody at Seven Days. I will. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Rachel Hillman, uh, great cover story. Check it out, and most of all, go to those places. There is nothing like the Whammy Bar in Callis, let me tell you. We are back, and it's 1030. We're going to open the phones and talk about whatever is on your mind. I've got some uh, arts News that I want to share. But first, let's go back to Brian and Eden because we got cut off from him earlier as a part of our conversation about Ukraine and nuclear weapons. Hey, Brian, welcome back. Yeah, I don't know if it's your phone
4: or mine. And if it happens again, I apologize. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll blame you. Okay. Um, first of all, I love the stuff about the uh, uh, Alberg uh, transfer station. That is so true. The guys from Music to Go to the Dump by us love that because it is a, such a social center yeah. of all these communities. Uh, as far as the Whammy Bar goes, unfortunately, it's a terrible place if you want to dance. You have to dance outside, Yeah, but they can't do anything about it. That's how we solve the problem. When it gets too crowded, you dance outside those side windows. You can still hear it. Um, as far as just briefly on the Ukraine we have strong opposition parties at this point in this country. We have – when the Democrats are in power, the Republicans are right on top of them. When the Republicans in power, Democrats are breathing down their neck. Um, and uh, in democracy, that may be a healthy thing. Who knows? Uh, it doesn't seem that way sometimes. But uh, Russia doesn't have that. And I hate to say it, but Putin's pretty freaking smart. And he – I wouldn't even be surprised if this was some kind of false flag, like he knew it was coming. The whole idea of him being embarrassed and that affecting him politically is not a big factor in Russia. If anything, it will wake the Russian people up to, oh, my God, there's a real threat here. And Putin or not, they will support Mother Russia. It's just going to happen. They might double down on the war. Um, The other thing I'd love Americans to understand is the geographical proximity of Ukraine to Russia and their history. Yep. Um, it would be as if China joined a military alliance with Mexico. It was putting weapons on our border. It would be viewed as just suicide from a U.S. military point of view to let that happen. Right, And that's how the Russian military views Ukraine. And they have since 1772 with Catherine the Great. So people really, I I really appreciate your, your first uh, expert there because there's a certain realistic uh, diplomacy that needs to happen. I have no idea where it will come from because.
1: Oh, lost him again. Uh Brian, we're going to blame you for the cutout, but uh, we got the point. And, you know, it's a lesson to all of us that we've got to keep reading. We've got to keep doing the history. We've got to keep doing the reading uh, so we can understand these threats around the world and uh, human behavior. So whether it's the history of Russia, which I know perilously little about um, – and or the Cuban missile crisis which i know a, a, a lot about as an amateur total amateur historian uh, but everybody keep doing the reading um, okay the phones are open 244 1777 you can email me at vermont Viewpo- viewpoint vt viewpoint at radiovermont.com a couple of arts notes i got to tell you uh, one of the pleasures of uh reading through seven days and getting ready to interview Rachel Hellman about her cover story. Then you get to the art section, and I mean, I I haven't written it down. I'm sorry, but the list of things to do this weekend and next week is getting longer and longer. One thing jumped out at me. Get this. Jaws, Steven Spielberg's 1975 Shark Saga, plays uh, at the... At the old Moran, what they call now the Moran frame. I know it is the Moran plant. Uh, the frame is still there. That's in Burlington, 6 to 11 PM on, uh, oh, it was already, God, it was last night. What a bummer. That's too bad. Uh, Road Dolls Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is playing at the, uh, in Waitsfield at the Valley Players Theater. Uh, the, the, uh, Pirates of Penzance is playing at the, uh, at the, uh, Goddard Haybarn Theater. And, uh, I, my friend, my friend, I see her at the grocery store because she works there. Uh, uh, her name is, uh, Nessa, uh, Rabin. She is an opera singer and, uh, she's, uh, she's one of the stars of that show and uh, I intend to try to get my brood to go with me and go see that. And then when it comes to uh, – oh, by the way, uh, uh, Act 39 – I'm sorry. Pirates and Penzance is at Unadilla Theater. This is why you have seven days, everybody, so you actually get the facts. With me, it's just speculation. Uh, Pirates of Penzance at the Unadilla Theater, which is – I'm going to guess. I think it's in Calais. Uh Act 39, uh, the, the End of Life uh, Theater, um, by Rob, uh, written by Rob Merman, directed by Monica Callen of Waterbury, uh, that's at the Goddard Haybarn Theater this weekend. Uh, so go check that out. And then at, at Hugo's uh, uh, Piano Bar on Saturday is... If you're into classical piano, uh, an evening with Margarita Air Magnus d'Ottir. She is a concert pianist from Crimea. She's a soloist with the Icelandic Philharmonic, winner of various international piano competitions. And she's from Ukraine. And she's visiting Vermont. And she will be at Hugo's Piano Bar on Saturday at 7 o'clock. Um, all sorts of things going on uh, uh, arts-wise. Uh, did I miss anything? Okay, now let's move to movies. Well, you missed Jaws last night. It's probably the defining characteristic of my son's. Uh, we let him watch it when he was 11 years old, and I think that was way too early. And I'll never forget going to that thing in 1975 when it opened. We drove in Lev Gridley's Green Station Wagon down Route 35 to the Town Theater to take in Jaws on a Saturday night. No streaming then, no DVDs, no cell phones, no smartphones, just total terror in the movie theater. Okay, movie number one, Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford is back, and that's at the Capitol Theater. I don't have times. You can look it up. Uh, the reviews are, say it's pretty good, but the, the uh, opportunity to see, uh, Harrison Ford one more time is Indiana Jones. Eh, that sounds pretty cool to me. The Wes Anderson, uh, movie, uh, is over at the Savoy Theater. That's got a starring cast. Tom Hanks is in it. Willem Dafoe is in it. Um, all sorts of stars are in that offbeat show. Uh, then Margot Robbie is gonna play the lead in Barbie which is strikes me as the worst possible movie in history on the other hand it's directed by Greta Gerwig who directed little Women and oh gosh the other the other uh the other sort of offbeat uh, film and if I know my Greta Gerwig it uh, the Barbie movie is gonna be a a subtle and um, under the radar commentary on uh, sex and uh, sexual sexual roles, gender roles, and the role of women in uh, in 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 society. Uh, the the male role, of course, we all anybody over the age of sixty knows is Ken, and that's being played by uh, Ryan Gosling. So. I bet I bet they did that movie with the intent to have some fun, uh, but make a commentary on cur- current gender roles. Uh, you hurt my feelings, Julie Louis Dreyfus. Is, is that is in that uh, film? Uh, that I bet if knowing her, that's a comedy. Um, but here's the big one, Oppenheimer. So we talked about nuclear weapons in the first hour. Uh, the and I don't know his name off the top of my head, but a great actor. If you're if you're a Peaky Blinders fan online um, on on Netflix, the lead, uh, the guy who plays Tommy in 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 uh, in Peaky Blinders, he plays Robert Oppenheimer, the man who led the team uh, in the uh, New Mexico desert that. Uh, Devel- designed and developed and exploded the first atomic bomb that was used and th- that was then subsequently used against Japan in World War II. Uh, he plays Oppenheimer himself. Uh, what a story. And guess who the director is? Uh, oh, God, come on. It's the, it's the director of the Batman movies uh, and, uh, and Dunkirk. Uh, it's going to come to me. Uh, because he is just the best director and, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna see him directing this guy in Oppenheimer. It's just gonna be the best film ever. Um, so tons of movies coming your way. Uh, I guess this is the way they still do it. They, they save the blockbusters for, for, uh, for August, late some late summer. But, uh, <laughs> Danny is, Furiously trying to uh, find the find the director of the Batman movies, uh, and he's the director of Oppenheimer, so I can't wait. And he also directed um, Dunkirk, the famous World War II uh, film, which uh, had Tom Hardy in it, and it had uh, Kenneth Branagh, and uh, yes, Christopher Nolan. Thank you. Yes. Christopher Nolan's the director of the Oppenheimer film, and I just can't wait. It is it is going to have history. It's going to have drama. Remember, again, if you're over a certain age, but Robert uh, Oppenheimer was, uh, you know, the famous mathematician and physicist uh, from Berkeley and elsewhere, and uh, he got tripped up after in, in, when America became afraid of the Russians and afraid of communism, uh, and we and, and Joseph McCarthy uh, came to the fore, and the Red Scare and the House Un-American Activities Committee, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer was ruined, and he lost his security clearance, um, all because of his uh, personal political beliefs, and uh, died a broken man. And, uh, I, I just can't wait to see that, that show. We're going to take a break. We're back. Uh, an interesting op-ed piece commentary just appeared in VT Digger. And it is by the mayor of Burlington Moreau Weinberger. Uh, we've talked on this show about the motel housing program that has been, uh, 700 Vermonters were evicted from motels in June, Uh, more to come. Uh, The mayor of Burlington takes a shot at state leaders and uh, especially the governor uh, in this commentary in which he talks about the need for a plan uh, in all communities to deal with homelessness. And he says that it's shameful that until this moment, there's been nothing in the way of a statewide strategy to end homelessness, um, and he goes on to talk about uh, the system that uh, that the uh, that the city of Burlington is using, in which he says that 200 people are on their homeless people are on their way to permanent housing. Uh, he by the end of the year, he criticizes the notion that so-called congregate shelters are the best we can do amidst the chaos of this disaster. Surely there's a better way to treat people when sunsetting a multi-year shelter program amidst a housing crisis that has made more people per capita homeless in Vermont than in all 48 states. Um, that's a that's a statement uh, by the mayor of Burlington uh, that uh, – And uh, he's talking about uh, his system and what they've done. But he criticizes uh, the the governor and the legislature for kicking the can down the road on this issue. And uh, that's going to be interesting. More to come from Moreau Weinberger. Sounds like he's going to take a more active and visible role in uh, statewide politics. We'll see where that goes. Uh, Now, in addition to the... Supreme Court uh, said that, that, uh, saying that uh, same-sex, sorry, <laughs> in addition to the Supreme Court ruling that uh, affirmative action is somehow discriminatory uh, using race, uh, they've, they've done some other things. They just ruled in favor of that web designer in Colorado, uh, which says that her name is Lori Smith. And she refused to bake a wedding cake, as I recall, or do, uh, sorry, do work for uh, a gay couple. Um, the Supreme Court has upheld the lawsuit in which, uh, that says that, uh, she, she has a, the, the right to do business with whomever she wants. Um, and also, uh, Joe Biden's proposed debt cancellation of more than $400 billion. Uh, that would have been one of the most expensive actions in U.S. history and affect tens of millions of borrowers, basically giving uh, college students uh, overloaded with student debt. The Supreme Court uh, ruled that action by the Biden administration unconstitutional. Uh dashing the hopes of tens of millions of borrowers and impose new restrictions on presidential power. It was, according to The New York Times, a resounding setback for President Biden, who vowed to help borrowers crawl out from under the mountain of debt. And uh, that is that again, it's a uh, that was going to be a central sort of pillar in Biden's argument for re-election, a signature part of his economic agenda aimed at the middle class. Well, struck down by the the U.S. Supreme Court. I have not looked at the opinion itself, but let's see. It doesn't, yeah, Elena Kagan. So the dissenting opinion was written by Justice Elena Kagan and joined by the other two liberal justices, Uh, So that was a six to three ruling. Kagan says that the uh, decision exceeds the court's proper limited role in the nation's jurisprudence. Uh, Boy, here we go. It's a it's a whole new Chief Justice Roberts writing for the majority said the Biden administration had sought to rewrite the statute. It said had authorized the program from the ground up. Um, So. So the, the, a lot coming out of the Supreme Court, the loan forgiveness program is struck down. Um, the free speech rights of the, uh, uh, the woman in Colorado who doesn't want to serve, uh, the gay, gay people, uh, her rights were upheld and affirmative action struck down. I gotta say on affirmative action, um, I, I know that liberals are and Democrats are uh, going to use this as a huge ca- uh, weapon in the can- in polit- political campaign. I don't blame them, but I gotta think I, I, it doesn't strike to me strike me that this is the end of the world in terms of the efforts by colleges and universities to build diverse student bodies. It seems to me I've seen admissions officers up close at colleges, uh, they've got all sorts of tools to uh, bring the kind of diversity to their college or university that they want, and uh, they use it all the time. It's not just race. Um, I was an athlete in college, and I I have a lingering suspicion that my admission to my college was uh, not exactly based on my academic record. Uh, It was more based on my athletic uh, prowess on the, on the, on the athletic field. So, you know, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton, uh, Berkeley, Stanford, I, you know, they all have football teams and they're, they all need quarterbacks and they all need right tackles. Uh, and I gotta ask, and we can do a show on this is, is their ability, it seems to me the Supreme court, uh, case struck down, um, Affirmative action when it comes to race, you cannot give uh, African-Americans, Latino-Americans or other people based on their race a leg up over white people. Uh, seems to me that's the case. Boy, there's going to be a lot of great stand up comedy around this case. Um, it just seems to me that when it comes to getting a right tackle for the football team, there's a heck of a lot of affirmative action going on there and i think you know that's a that's a that's that's a, that's a good one for brady Farkas, and i'll leave it to him but yeah there's a lot of affirmative action going on everywhere okay that is our show uh if you want to be a guest on this show we'd love to have you drop us a line the show becomes a podcast at wdevradio.com and of course you can listen live to the show i'm here wednesdays and fridays you can find me at kevinkellis.com. subscribe to my weekly newsletter. There should be one dropping today about the nuclear weapons issue. It's called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My podcast Conflict of Interest also examines the issues we deal with on the show. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivergan and the folks at the Friendly Pioneer WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on WDEV.